if you follow news in the evangelical world to any degree, then you'll know that today many pastors across Canada are preaching a sermon on the topic of biblical sexuality. And the reason that they're doing that is because this week the Canadian government passed a law that makes it illegal to try and persuade someone away from a homosexual lifestyle or to try and persuade someone away from identifying sexually as anything other than that which they were labeled as at birth. Now, the law won't say as much, but the implications are that it makes it illegal to share the gospel if the implications would be a turning away from sexual sin. And so today, many Canadian pastors are taking a stand, and they're preaching on the Bible's teaching concerning sexuality. And many in America are doing the same thing. As we work through Matthew, here we are on the virgin birth. The point of the text is not an affirmation of biblical sexuality. And I do want to get to the point of the text. But before we do, I think it's appropriate to talk about this issue. Just a few minutes. You see in the text, we read, Joseph was a just man. Joseph was a just man, which means... He had a concern to uphold the law. He sees Mary. She is with child. His initial conclusion is that she has been unfaithful to their relationship. And he's just. He wants to uphold the law. So he seeks to get a divorce. The law, in this case, would be specifically laws given in the book of Deuteronomy concerning this very situation. If you were betrothed to a woman and she is already found to be with child. There are specific laws to that end. Those laws in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Old Testament concerning God's plan for marriage and sexuality, those laws are not arbitrary. They were not made up on a whim by Moses. As we read through Deuteronomy and we read God's laws concerning marriage and sexuality, they are grounded in creation theology. Lord willing, one day as a church, we'll work through the book of Deuteronomy. I would love to do that. And one thing I would hope to show you is that these laws are not arbitrary, but they come from creation theology. In Genesis chapter 1, God makes very, very clear that he created man and woman. And that's it. He didn't create any alternatives. He didn't create anything in between. Every single person who has ever been born is either a man or a woman. Shortly after, God makes very clear again his plan for marriage is that it would be an exclusive and permanent union between one man and one woman. That is God's decree for marriage. An exclusive and permanent union between one man and one woman. He does not give any alternatives. 
the age in which we live will be recorded as the age of the sexual revolution. For all the other things that have happened in the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years, advancements in technology, advancements in our ability to communicate, for everything else that has happened within our lifetime, the age in which we live will actually be recorded by historians as the age of the sexual revolution. And that is championed by the world. It's celebrated. What that means is that it is the age in which we, humanity, sought to turn away from God's plan. In any of its manifestations, the last 10, 20, 30 years have been an age in which we have been determined to break free from God's plan for marriage, for human identity, for sexuality. And it is terrifying what the implications will be. We have not yet felt the implications of that. They are still downstream. But the world has been tampering with God's law for some time now. To the degree that now, in Canada, it is being enforced by law. People are to turn away from it, and there is no precedent by which you can try and persuade them otherwise and convince them that God's plan is best, or to pronounce these deviations as a sin. I want to be abundantly clear. Any expression of sexuality apart from God's plan as given in His Word is a sin. It is a sin. And if that sin is not repented of, and if faith is not put in Christ to atone for those sins, then the end is the same as it is for anybody else with unrepented of sin, namely an eternity in hell. So today, we stand with our brothers and sisters in Canada. We support them and we commend the stand that they're taking. This is not a time to be fearful. It's not. As the world gets darker, the gospel shines more brightly. This is not a time to be fearful. I would ask you to pray for our brothers and sisters in Canada. Pray that they would have wisdom. Pray that the pastors especially would have wisdom as they lead their congregations. Pray that they would have grace and discernment. Pray that they would have courage. I'd also encourage you as variations on God's plan confront you, and I know that they already are. This is not a topic that we're not already familiar with because for many of you already these issues are confronting you in your day-to-day -day lives. And as they do, Please, hold firm to the Bible's teaching on biblical sexuality. Don't depart from God's plan for men and for women and for marriage. And then finally, 
as you know people that are caught up in these sins, just remember they are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And they, like every other sinner, needs to hear the gospel. I pray that we would be faithful in this area. Joseph was a just man. He sought to divorce Mary because he wanted to uphold the law. Joseph didn't know what we know, and that is that Mary was given this child supernaturally. She had not been unfaithful. The Holy Spirit had conceived it in her, and so the angel of the Lord intervenes, and he meets Joseph in a dream, and he says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Do this, because the child is conceived from the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an almighty announcement to have in a dream one night. This morning, one of my kids came in to tell me all about her dreams. This was quite some dream. Then, as if that weren't enough, the angel goes on and says, more than that, the child is to be a savior. You're to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew explains the reason these things happened the way they did is because a prophecy had been given hundreds of years prior in the book of Isaiah saying this very thing would come to pass. And then we read that Joseph woke up and he obeyed. He was obedient to the angel who had visited him. As we think about the incarnation, that is the doctrine that's in view in this text, we speak of the incarnation, God becoming man and dwelling amongst us. As we think about that doctrine and this text, the primary question we need to ask is how this text functions within Matthew's argument. So you'll remember Matthew leads with the claim that Jesus is the Christ. He then sets about validating that claim. Jesus is the Christ, and then for two chapters, Matthew's prologue, he shows us why that is so. Couldn't be any other way. So how does him recording the details of Jesus' birth support his argument? How does it support his claim? And there is much we could say this morning. I would just give you four reasons why recording this birth supports Matthew's claim, and what we actually find is that they are not merely proofs, though they do function in that way, they support his argument, they are not merely proofs to be acknowledged mentally, but they're actually points that provoke our worship. We see that as Matthew records these details, and he bolsters his claim that Jesus is the Christ, he is giving us a rich theology of the incarnation that leads us in worship of Jesus Christ. The first reason that it supports Matthew's claim and prompts our worship is that the incarnation shows Jesus to be a trustworthy king of the whole world. The incarnation shows Jesus to be a trustworthy king of the whole world. Now, why do I say that? Because Matthew records the quote from Isaiah. 
Now, this is crucially important. Verse 22, Matthew tells us, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. So Matthew is outlining there the very foundation of why these things happened historically. The birth happened in this way, says Matthew, because the reason for it happening in this way is because Isaiah had spoken of these very things. It is the foundation theologically for the birth happening in this manner. So it's very important as you read a text like this to pay attention to Matthew's reasoning, his argument. And as he makes this claim concerning the prophet Isaiah, he is quoting from that Old Testament text that we read earlier this morning. Whenever you see any New Testament writer quote from the Old Testament, you have to understand he is not merely proof-texting. I think this is sometimes how we think of these things, especially around Christmas as we are looking to Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, and there are lots of texts in Matthew and Luke that give us fulfillment language. And what we can do is boil them down in our thinking so as to understand that the flow of argument is simply this. In the Old Testament, a prophecy was spoken, creating a box to be checked. And in the New Testament, it is now checked. Therefore, he must be the Messiah. That's a superficial reading of the text. That is what Matthew is doing, but so much more. As he quotes from the Old Testament, and indeed as any New Testament writer quotes from the Old Testament, they are pulling on a world of theology. There is a theological context that surrounds this one verse that Matthew quotes in Isaiah. There is a theological context in Isaiah. And Matthew is pulling on it. That one verse gives him access to that theological context and he is pulling on it so that it would bleed into our understanding of Matthew. So that means any time you read of an Old Testament quotation, you are responsible to go back to that text in its original context and to consider it. To ponder what is the theological context of this verse And how does that inform my reading of the New Testament? So just turn with me briefly. Back to Isaiah chapter 7. We've read it already this morning once. We need to think about the context now. The book of Isaiah, in one word, is trust. The prophet Isaiah gives us a theology of trust Because he is speaking at a time when God's people were prone to not trust. They were not prone to look at God and trust in him. They were prone to look at many other things around them and trust in those things. So from beginning to end, Isaiah is giving us a theology of trust. He's showing us the trustworthiness of God. And at the same time, he's showing us the utter untrustworthiness of other things. The untrustworthiness of idols. The untrustworthiness of other nations. Don't go down to Egypt, says Isaiah. You won't find what you're looking for there. They can't be trusted. In Isaiah chapter 7, the most immediate historical context, we have a chessboard of kings. Many kings on the scene in Isaiah chapter 7. We have 
Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom at the time. We have Rezin. Look at 7-1. Rezin, the king of Syria. We have this name called Pekah, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And we have the king of Assyria looming in the background, the big superpower at that time. There is a chessboard of kings in Isaiah 7, and not one of them deserves to be called a king. All of them act in a manner that is not worthy of their kingship. They are utterly untrustworthy. And God is saying to Ahaz, you don't need to fear these men. Rezin and Pekah had formed an alliance. They were coming to Ahaz. Ahaz was terrified. God says, don't fear them. I'm the one that you need to fear. Trust in me. Don't fear them. He then says to Ahaz, ask a sign so that I can show you my trustworthiness. Ahaz, a rotten king, refuses. This is a false show of humility. I I won't do that. How could I possibly put the law to the test? God just told you to ask for a sign. But he won't do it, and so God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign is given notice to the house of David, verse 13. Not to Ahaz alone, but the whole house of David. He's going way beyond Ahaz's reign now. He's saying to the the ongoing lineage of David, this is the sign specifically that a virgin shall conceive a son. Now, he should be called Emmanuel. God is with us. In chapter 7, he doesn't say there exactly what this son will go on to do. But chapter 7 of Isaiah belongs to a larger textual unit that extends all the way to chapter 9. Turn over the page to chapter 9 of Isaiah. You know this text. We read it normally around December. In chapter 9, a commentary is provided on the child that was to be born of a virgin. In verse 6, for us... To us, a child is born. This is the child that was in view in chapter 7. To us, a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah is announcing the royal status of this child and telling us, unlike all the other kings of that age, he will be a Prince of Peace. He will be a wonderful king, says Isaiah. And notice verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In ways that probably weren't fully apparent to the readers, Isaiah is saying his government, his peace, his reign will go on and on and expand. He is announcing the one day universal reign of Christ. And that forms the counterpart to the untrustworthiness of the kings of that day. And by implication, back to Matthew, so also to the king-like figure of his day, namely Herod. We'll think about Herod next week as he sought to kill the Messiah, another untrustworthy authority figure. And Matthew is using this text to import the theology and saying, don't be fearful. 
Don't put your trust in anything else, but look to Christ as God's anointed king. A trustworthy king whose reign knows no end. Exactly in accordance with Jewish messianic expectations. Matthew is using this to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ as he has claimed. For us, the question is whether we worship him on the basis of his identity. Whether we worship him on the basis of the incarnation, that he is indeed the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, whether we have trusted in Jesus. Now, as I say that, I know that this is the risk of sounding like church talk. Have you trusted in Jesus? When you really probe that, it's quite abstract. What does it mean to the person on the street? Have you trusted in Jesus? It's very abstract to say that. What do we mean when we say Jesus is a trustworthy king to whom you can entrust your whole life? How does that affect 9 a.m. on a Monday morning? Has that changed the way I think and behave at 10 p.m. on a Wednesday evening? What does it mean to trust your whole life to this king whose reign knows no end? You bring your, your deepest desires. You bring your deepest fears. If you want to know what a person's idols are, ask what are you most terrified of? What terrifies you the most? Now you start to get an idea of what it would be that we would idolize. You bring your deepest desires and your deepest fears. God knows them. And they're in there. They're in your heart. You bring them to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm taking a risk. I'm going to risk it. I'm going to give them to you. You take them and you do whatever you want with them. We behave in such a way that we are striving to cause the deepest desires to come to pass. And we behave in such a way that we are striving to guard the deepest fears from coming a reality in our lives. We hand them to Christ and say, do whatever you want with them. If you would be glorified in my life. I hand them to you, fearful that the desires won't come to pass and the fears might, but they're yours and you do whatever you want with them because more than those, I want you to be honored in my life. That's what it is to trust Jesus as king. And Matthew's announcement of the virgin birth, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, prompts us to worship him, not least by trusting in him. Second, Matthew uses this announcement of Jesus' birth to bolster his case that Jesus is the Christ, and in turn, it prompts our worship. Verse 
Because the incarnation shows us that Jesus will live an obedient life on our behalf. The incarnation speaks of his obedient life lived on our behalf. Now you're probably looking at the text saying, I don't see that. Matthew here announces the birth of a child, and that's the end of this unit. So where is Jesus' obedient life on our behalf? And I grant you it is a theological inference that comes from the text. Matthew's not giving us all the details right now. One of the theological implications that comes out of the incarnation as we think through it is that he will go on to live a perfectly obedient life on our behalf. So how do we get there? I wonder if you notice as we read the text of the juxtaposition between the angel's announcement and Isaiah's. Here's what the angel says. Verse 21, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Very common name in Jesus' day, but used very specifically with reference to this child. He will be the bringer of the Lord's salvation. Isaiah said they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So there's a mistake Something went wrong there. There's a, there's a difference in the text. Or maybe it's not a mistake. One thing to understand is that as, a, as Isaiah says, they shall call his name Emmanuel, he is not declaring there the personal name by which this child will be known. Emmanuel's not saying this child will be known, called by his parents and his friends as Emmanuel. He's more describing the office that he'll fulfill. In the same way that we might say Jesus will be called a teacher or Jesus will be called a prophet. That's not his personal name, but the role he fulfills. But even so, that doesn't get to the heart of the issue. Why the difference between the angel's announcement and Isaiah's? Why is he called Jesus and Emmanuel? Because one is to form a commentary on the other. The angel says he's to be called Jesus. He is to be the bringer of the Lord's salvation. Isaiah says the means by which that will happen is that God himself will dwell with us. The angel announces the coming of the Lord's salvation and the question is, okay, Lord's salvation is coming. How will it appear? How is it going to work? How is it going to function? Is a huge army going to show up? Is he going to put lights in the sky effecting salvation? No, God himself will show up amongst us. That is God's plan. This is getting into the heart of the incarnation. God's plan is that he himself would take up residence amongst sinful humanity. That's his plan for salvation. Notice he comes as a child. We're working our way towards understanding how the incarnation speaks of Jesus' perfect life lived on our behalf. He shows up as a child. Again, God could have caused Jesus to show up as a man. God could have done that. That's not beyond his ability. He could affect 
a plan whereby Jesus, one day at 30-something years old, appears out of the wilderness, and he's here, the long-awaited for Messiah. But that wasn't God's plan. What God did was cause him to be born as an infant in a manger. And that is crucial for your salvation. Why? Because if the plan is that this man will die on a cross and yet he shows up as an infant, what that prompts is an earthly life to be lived. He didn't show up as a man and the next day stand trial and hang on a cross. He showed up as an infant. And yet the plan is for him to die on a cross. And so now there is an earthly life to be lived. And you need his perfect obedience for your righteousness. When a sinner is justified, it is not the case that their bank account has gone from negative, infinitely negative, to zero. That is not what has happened in the economy of the gospel. You sometimes hear people say, justified means it's just as if you've never sinned. It's not right. Your bank account was at minus infinity, and it's been catapulted into the heavens to a positive infinity. It has not been brought to zero, but way beyond that. How? Because Jesus lived a perfect earthly life on your behalf. He was made to tread out a normal human existence for 30-something years, and not one second of his earthly life was his heart inclined away from the will of the Father. Every single second of his earthly life, his heart was inclined perfectly towards the will of his Father in heaven. And it is for that reason that you stand here this morning clothed in righteousness. It comes from his life. Jesus woke up in the mornings. He ate breakfast. Jesus did his chores that his parents had asked of him. Jesus received something of an education, whatever that would have looked like. At some point, his father started to teach him his trade, and he became a carpenter. Jesus began his teaching ministry and was rejected. He stood trial and was persecuted. And he was pinned to the cross. And never once did he sin. And for that reason, you stand here today declared by your Father in heaven as righteous. I remember hearing a story that illustrated the fact some years ago. I don't know if the story is true, but it's irrelevant. The story makes the point. A man back home in England purchased a Rolls Royce, a very, very expensive car, on the premise that the car would never break down. That was the selling point. The car will never break down. So he purchases the car, and of course, 
enjoys driving it for some months, and then at the end of a few months, the car, of course, breaks down. He's in the countryside. He's not near any town, and the car's broken down. So he calls Rolls-Royce. He says, the car that would never, ever break down is broken down, and here I am. So Rolls-Royce send out a helicopter with a mechanic on board. They fly out a helicopter to him. So eager are they to give good customer service. The helicopter lands in a nearby field. The mechanic comes out, fixes the car, and he drives on his way. Some months pass, and the man hears nothing from Rolls-Royce, and so he calls them. He says, I'm the guy that... You sent a helicopter out to me, and I was very thankful, but I just want to settle the the account, the bill. I want to draw a line under this. You tell me what I owe. The lady says, "Uh, we have absolutely no record of your car having ever broken down. (laughs) Which is exactly how God looks at us this morning. He has no record of your sins more than that. He has a record of your perfect righteousness because of Christ and his incarnation. Third reason that the incarnation supports Matthew's argument, while at the same time prompting us to worship Christ, is that the incarnation speaks of his atoning death on the cross. Again, it's not in the text, at least not in an explicit way, but only by inference. Matthew is giving us a record of Jesus' birth. He's including lots of prominent details. And as we unpack those details, we arrive at theological conclusions. One of the things Matthew tells us is that the angel said, you should call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. I can only imagine that as Matthew wrote those words, his heart was racing with excitement. You have to remember, when when Matthew writes this, he knows the full story. He doesn't embark upon this narrative unsure of how it's going to pan out. He's not still waiting for yet more information about this man. Matthew has the whole picture, and he sits down to write And I can only imagine in chapter 1, as he writes the words, he shall save his people from their sins, his heart is pounding in his chest. Because he knows the end from the beginning. He knows where this story is headed, and he knows how this sin will be dealt with. How salvation will be affected for his people. And so do you. We sit here in the same privileged position with the whole of the gospel narrative, the whole counsel of God, teaching us how it would be that this man would save his people from their sins. And the answer is he would die a sin-atoning death. He would make a, a substitution on the cross. Now understand that that substitutionary death is predicated upon the incarnation. It is not a substitutionary death Otherwise, here's why. In order to pay for our sins, we needed a sacrifice of likeness. In the Old Testament, God had given a sacrificial system to his people. You can read this afternoon. 
Leviticus 1 through 9. Leaf through it. See what he says about the sacrificial system. And there he gives lots of different sacrifices to be made on a regular basis by the Old Testament saints. And the sacrifices they bring are animals. Now, he gives options. You read through the text, you see you can bring a a pigeon or a turtle dove. You can bring a sheep or a goat or you can bring a bull. The reason for those options is to account for the economic status of the Old Testament saints. God wants to make this available to all. So the poorer families had the option of bringing a, a pigeon and that would be acceptable. Those with more money would bring a a bull to pay for their sins, to make a sacrifice. He makes plain that whatever animal you bring, it needs to be without blemish. It has to be spotless, representing freedom from sin, so as to make that payment for your sin. A faulty animal can't make a payment for your sin. And then, as you keep reading through Leviticus, you realize that having made that payment for sin with the animal that you brought, you need to go back again. The payment was made, but then we went home and we got into that terrible fight and said things that we didn't mean, and now we need to go back. The payment was made... And then the next day, I was with the guy in the marketplace, and I told a lie, and now I need to go back. The sacrificial system that God gives in Leviticus did not account for sins ultimately. So much so that the sacrificial system became the drumbeat of life in ancient Israel. How is it that you would mark your days in your calendar? It would be by going to the temple again to make the appropriate sacrifice. And then, one day a year, the day of atonement, all of the sins were washed clean. Of all of Israel. But even that was not an ultimate sacrifice, because the same time next year, we'll be back again doing the same thing again. The sacrificial system never made a final payment for sin, in large measure, because the things being brought were animals. And the sin belongs to us, humans. What's needed is that a man would come. A perfect, spotless man without blemish. But he has to be a man. And so as Matthew announces the birth of a child, and he makes plain his deity, at the same time he makes plain his humanity. And that wonderful reality of the incarnation that Jesus is now fully man and fully God secures for us the sin-atoning death on the cross. Now the plan of salvation is in place. Jesus can live his fully perfect obedient life and at the end of it die a death he did not deserve to die so as to make a payment for our sins ultimately, finally. If you have put your faith in Christ as your Savior, your sins have been dealt with. There's nothing left for you to try and account for before God because Jesus has paid it all. These are the songs that we rehearse Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. And you see how the incarnation leads us into what we call the exclusivity of the gospel. 
It has to be this way, and it can't be any other way. It has to be the God-man, and any other plan doesn't work. This is how Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Every world religion acknowledges the issue of sin. You can't hide from it. It's there. You look out the window, you see the issue. Every world religion then tries to answer the issue of sin, tries to respond, to give a solution to the problem of evil. The evil that dwells in our hearts, and every world religion comes up with a solution. And no solution works apart from the solution of the Christian faith, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It doesn't work. It doesn't work to say Jesus is the solution along with some acts of obedience on my part, as the Roman Catholic Church would say. It doesn't work. The second you add that second half, the the works on my behalf, you're now inferring that the, the provision of the Savior was incomplete, insufficient. That is not enough, so I add to it. You're declaring the solution offered by God to be insufficient. It doesn't work, as the Buddhists would say, that actually, if you are well-behaved and you live a good life, you're going to come back as something else. And and the, the quality of life that you lead is in direct response to how well you worked in this life. It doesn't work. Because you're a sinner, so you can't make that payment. You need a man, but he has to be spotless. It doesn't work for the Jews to say what they say, which is, there is a problem. Of sin and the solution needs to come from outside of us from God, but we're still waiting. We're still waiting for the Messiah. That doesn't work because history has recorded the virgin birth. It has recorded this supernatural birth conceived of the Holy Spirit, and the miracle of the virgin birth foreshadows the miracle of the sin free life and the sin atoning for death. We recited together this morning an ancient creed, the Nicene Creed, possibly the most definitive creed as it relates to the Christian faith. People have been saying that creed for thousands of years. It's an interesting study to look into the history of the various creeds that we have received. And when you do, what you realize is that the creeds were birthed out of theological tensions. If not theological tensions, theological heresies. There's a problem at this point in church history. There's some aberrant teaching. And so, church fathers get together and say, what is it that we believe about the person of Christ? And then we get a creed. When you study those heresies... And there have been dozens upon dozens throughout the history of the church. You come to realize that many of them, if not most, center on the person of Jesus Christ. There are lots of disagreements, but the most prevalent and the most persistent disagreement throughout church history, it concerns the person of Jesus Christ. And what the Nicene Creed does wonderfully is affirms the truth of the biblical text that he is truly God and truly man. And what you need to do is decide in your heart what you make of Jesus. 
Because your very salvation depends upon it. If you tamper with the doctrine of the incarnation one inch, you lose the gospel. You have to determine what you think of Christ. And the only way that you can be made right with God is to affirm what the text tells us, which he is fully man and fully God. And of course, a text like this is normally only focused upon and thought about at Christmas And there are dangers in so doing. Earlier this week, on Monday of this week, I knew this text was coming on Sunday. And so in our family Bible time, I enforced this text upon my kids. I said, guys, I need help. I'm going to read the text for you for Sunday's sermon. I just want you to tell me what you think. Just give me your first thoughts. So I read this text. And one of my kids, first thought, they said, why didn't we do this at Christmas? And actually, with some probing, what I think was actually meant by that question is, why are we doing this now? I said, we did do this at Christmas, but it's good that we do it now as well. We're working through Matthew, and it's our text this week. The problem, as we think of the incarnation at no other point in the year save Christmas, is that it gets wrapped up in sentimentality. And we lose the enormity of the doctrine as it relates to our eternal standing before God. If the world should acknowledge the birth of this baby, it is only in so much as it's a cute picture to ponder. And that's it. The world will not acknowledge the ramifications that this birth has concerning our sin and a holy God. Why do we celebrate the virgin birth, because my salvation depends upon it. Because apart from the incarnation, I have no hope before a holy God. But as I think about God's perfect plan, that he himself would take up residence among us, taking on the form of human flesh, I see the first expressions of the gospel not least a sin paid, a death paid for my sin. Finally, the fourth way in which this supports Matthew's claim that Jesus is in the Christ and in turn leads us to worship is that the incarnation shows us that Jesus will bring many sons to glory. Jesus will bring many sons to glory. When Jesus descended and became a child, he took on human flesh. He was fully God already. He became fully man. He lived out an earthly life before us. He died on the cross. He rose again, and then he ascended. Again, Matthew knows the end from the beginning, and so do we. Consider when Jesus ascended, he didn't leave his humanity behind him. When he descended, he took on human flesh so that we can say, fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. That's what happened. He changed the contours of history. Because in Genesis chapter 1, God makes clear that the heavens and the earth are two separate realms. In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. Two spheres of existence. And he makes plain, he dwells in the heavens and mankind's dwelling is to be on earth. We carry the image of God, but we're not dwelling with God in heaven. We belong on earth. There is this divide that he creates in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 11, one of the issues, one of the issues, it's a, it's a thick melting pot of sins as they build the Tower of Babel. One of the problems is that they're trying to make themselves gods. They're trying to build a tower up to the heavens and transgress that domain. They don't want to be on earth anymore. They want to be in the heavens as gods. God smashes the tower and disperses them. At the point of the incarnation, God redefines the contours of history as he condescends to dwell with us. Things will be forever changed now. When Jesus ascends, he doesn't leave his humanity behind. Think of it. Jesus returns to the Father in a different form than that which he left the Father. He goes back to heaven different from how he left heaven. Namely, now as the God-man. Now why does he do that? Because he is acting in that moment for us as a forerunner. Jesus is acting as the first fruits of salvation. He is showing us now that one day our dwelling with, will be with God. One day our dwelling will be with God. Perhaps the most famous time-honored work on the incarnation Theological work on the Incarnation is by a church father called Athanasius. Athanasius of Alexandria wrote on the Incarnation, again defending the biblical truth against claims to the contrary. You can read it and be encouraged by it. In his work on the Incarnation, Athanasius says that when Christ descended and became man, our knowledge of God attained new levels. We knew him before, but now we see him in the flesh. And so our knowledge of God reaches new levels by virtue of the incarnation. Our responsibility is to ponder these realities. To think upon the incarnation and so worship Jesus in response. Let's pray now to that end. Father, we praise you this morning as we have thought about the reality of the incarnation. That your perfect plan would be such that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully, truly God, would descend and take on human flesh so as to be amongst us. We see that that truth is in fulfillment of a prophecy spoken by Isaiah. And in fulfillment of that prophecy, there is an announcement that Jesus is a trustworthy king. Of his government, there will be no end. And we respond by trusting him giving him our 
desires and our fears and saying that you would reign over my life and be glorified. We trust you, Lord Jesus. We see in the announcement of the incarnation that Jesus will go on to live a perfect life on our behalf. An obedient life that we could not live. And yet Jesus, coming as a child, trod out an earthly, normal human existence, leading to the cross, never once sinning. And therein is our righteousness. We praise you for the incarnation. As we look at the incarnation, we see the reality of a sin atoning death on the cross. The angel announces, you should call his name Jesus because he will take away their sin. And we know that will come through his death on the cross. We could not make that payment. No animal could make that payment in a final way, but Jesus could. So we rejoice in the incarnation because it pays the debt of sin that we owe. And as we look at the incarnation, we see future glory, future hope. Jesus ascends fully God and fully man, different to how he left heaven, speaking of our eventual dwelling with you. He will lead many sons to glory. And so we rejoice in the incarnation. Father, embed these truths in our hearts. Order our steps around them. May our lives reflect the incarnation, the reality of our gratitude for your perfect plan as you sent Jesus, Emmanuel, to be a child and to win for us salvation. We pray. In his name, amen.